Previously on Restaurant Revolution, Patrick Hingst, founder and owner of Woodchips Barbecue in Lapeer, Michigan, shared details about operating his restaurants during the first few months of the Michigan COVID-19 2020 lockdowns. Emotionally, the lockdown took a personal toll on the Woodchips team, as family conflict, mental strain, and even suicide attempts shook the restaurant, not to mention the undue stress the situation was placing on individuals, as well as the community as a whole. The restaurant faced a cash flow crisis and the bank account dipped into the red. In this episode, we continue the conversation, examining the various effects of lockdown policies and newly adopted behaviors. This is The Restaurant Revolution. Let's get back to the financial stuff. So you said that you guys hit near zero. What happened next? Oh, we hit negative. Oh. <laughs> um, so yeah, I got that notice of, uh, of insufficient funds when our, our payrolls swooped out and I, I watched as the account went negative. And that's, that's a really scary time because, well, not just that that account went negative there, but you are very vulnerable in that time period. Any transactions that go in that account, taking it lower, it's gonna be hit with tons of fees. It's gonna to start to mess up your corporate credit. It's gonna risk locking out your account. On top of that, you get hit with fees from all your, your vendors for bounced checks or returned ACH fees. So it is not a place we wanted to be in. Luckily, we were able to get our credit card deposits from the weekend deposited, which gave us a little bit of a buffer. And at this point, I had been working towards uh, the PPP, the Payment Protection Plan. Um, I, I was able to tell early on when they passed the first uh, stimulus that this was the big one that was going to be able to save the business. The Paycheck Protection Program, also known as PPP, is a $350 billion provision for small businesses. It's a new type of loan, and this loan is eligible for up to 100% forgiveness if spent in the correct way and as long as your expenses don't change. The problem was the government passed it but had no real way of implementing it. Mm -hmm. They put it all onto the banks and just said, talk to your banks. So I went to every bank that I could find and most of them didn't have information. So I spent every day calling banks until I finally got a lead on one of the local banks that I didn't really bank with. But I'm like, hey, I heard you guys are on top of this. You understand this PPP thing and I think this is how my business is gonna be saved, at least for the time being. So I connected with them, Oxford Bank, uh, where my other restaurant was located, and they seemed to have it together. So we dove into it. We're kind of figuring it out on the fly because they're figuring it out. The government just wrote it. There's a lot of stuff that wasn't clarified, but we were able to get the paperwork filled out, get it processed, and then we're just basically a waiting game, waiting for that money to come through, um, with the idea there being that that should have funded our payroll for at least eight weeks. It would have been a huge, huge weight off our chest and would give us a little bit of room to operate to hopefully make a little bit of money and get a safety net back in place. So we were able to get that um, towards the, the end of April, uh, literally about a week after we went to the negative, PPP was funded and we had that safety net. It was good that we were able to make some money, but the whole thing with there is, is that's just money to pay off labor. So that really only works out for us if we're able to do enough revenue to continue to make money. And at this point, we are still locked down for a while longer. So it was still frustrating knowing that we had this lifeline, but then watching it dwindle as we weren't able to open up and fully take advantage of it. Wow, that's pretty, that's pretty challenging and rough. But at least we didn't go bankrupt. We got it back to positive. And at this point, we weren't just treading water. We actually had some breathing room to be able to make a plan to get us on track. Pat, when we last spoke, you mentioned the labor crisis. What was that about? And today we're asking the question with the labor shortage we have, what kind of jobs should be telling our young people to look forward and training? But the craziest thing, years ago, 
there were no jobs. And we were even seeing older people trying to get back in the workforce, right. but they're competing with young people's summer jobs for Walmart greeters, whatever. Right. We couldn't have enough jobs. And now it's the opposite. It's just the opposite. We it's actually, amazing. And, it, and basically, you're talking about 18 months. This happened in 18 months where we went from, you know, having high unemployment rates to now we actually have more jobs posted than you have people to fill those jobs. So your restaurant is mostly staff? Yeah, so we called everybody back and they were very understanding. Um, you know, it wasn't a position that I wanted to put them in, but at the end of the day, I had a legal obligation to call them back. And then technically, if somebody did not want to return back, I was supposed to notify the unemployment agency saying that they had a, a bona fide job offer. To start, let's remind ourselves how the benefit works. Everyone who is unemployed gets an additional $600 benefit, no matter how much money they were making before the pandemic. Let's look at somebody who makes $50,000 a year in New York. Other than making the base unemployment of $480, they're also making an additional $600, making a total of $1,080. If they stayed employed or found a new job, they would only make about $815 a week. As a result, being unemployed is more economically advantageous to them because they end up making an extra $265. The extra benefit could increase unemployment by 13.9 million. To give you a sense of magnitude, this is the amount nearly total to the whole population of countries like Dominican Republic, Cuba, or Haiti. So it put me in this position I did not want to be in, where I was you know, forcing employees to come back to work, and now instead of sitting at home and collecting similar pay, in some cases actually collecting more pay than they got while working with me, I was put in the position where I had to call them back or then I would be violating the law. So it's just a situation where I was, you know, walking a tightrope and hopefully not going to be viewed as a bad guy when I was just trying to preserve the jobs, take care of the business and follow the law as best I could. So how did the summer go for you guys? I mean, relatively well. We were really excited to be back open, even with just the 50% capacity. Weather was really nice. Uh, we lucked out, so the patio was a great addition, and we'd recently been able to expand that, so that was awesome. Um, we still had lots of creative ideas that were flowing. We had the egg roll factory that, that we mentioned that we came up with during the first lockdown. We were able to integrate that, um, use that to do some fun pop-up events, partner with some breweries, do some neighborhood events too, get us into markets that we were never in before, and find ways to generate revenue to make up for you know, a lot of lost sales on top of um, you know, our catering business just being decimated. You oh, know, sure. All of our full-service weddings gone, canceled, all our corporate catering, just, just gone. And I assume that makes a, a decent portion of your revenue. Oh yeah. Catering is a huge deal for mm. us. Um, not only does it get my employees good pay and good hours, but it's, it's a big revenue driver for us during the summer months and allows us to keep our employment up. And we, you know, that's where a lot of our profitability comes from. And remind me, capacity is at 50%. So we've got 50%. Is that right? 50%. Yes. Throughout the whole summer. And, but being a smaller restaurant, we were forced to actually be probably a little bit below that uh, because we still had to observe the six feet of mm. table spacing. So normally we have a capacity here that can have up to 99, but even at 50%, that was probably somewhere around 30 to 36 seats. And it's not like you ever have every single seat full when you see people, you got two tops that seat at the tables for four and such. So yeah, our, our effective capacity was cut down quite a bit. So capacity is cut down, catering is non-existent. 
Um, but you guys are surviving. Yeah, so you can tell people were going stir crazy. We had a lot of people coming out. I mean, there were still some people that were just not going to come out no matter what. And that was, that's fine, whatever works for them. But a lot of supporters were itching to come back here. They love seeing our faces, connecting with humans again. My team loves seeing them. Um, you could tell it was just helping the mental health of everybody, just being able to have that human connection again, let my servers get back to work. And, um, you know, while, while a lot of people were getting good money, uh, from the unemployment bonuses that started to kick in. At the same time, I just think most people don't really like not working. You know, just sitting around the house seems like a great life until two weeks in and then you're, you're bored out of your mind and you're ready to, you know, do something. So Pat, you made it through the summer and now it's October and Governor Whitmer has issued 192 emergency executive orders and now the Michigan Supreme Court has stepped in. The trend continues. More breaking news. This just in from the Michigan Supreme Court, which has just ruled against Governor Whitmer in an emergency powers case. The, the court says the governor exceeded her powers during the pandemic, ruling that a majority of her executive orders after April 30th were not valid. So on October 2nd, Michigan Supreme Court ruled that the majority of Governor Whitmer's orders were actually unconstitutional and ended her unilateral hold on authority. So you must have felt pretty good about that, right? Yes, I mean, for at least a brief period, I was like, okay, the system worked. Um, the govern, the, there's rules in the constitution that say uh, that the, the legislature is not allowed to delegate their authority of lawmaking to another department. And so my understanding with the ruling was the first month of declared emergency was legal. And then the, she worked with the legislature to be authorized for another few weeks. All that was legal. But at that point, when she stopped seeking authorization, and was acting completely unilaterally, all of those executive orders were invalidated and ruled unconstitutional or illegal. Okay, so that sounds like good news, right? Does that mean there's never going to be a lockdown again? What did you think that meant? Well, I at least hoped at this point that it would lead to conversations. So she would have to work with the legislature. So it couldn't just be dismissing everything as a partisan attack, but maybe we could actually push and get some concrete metrics in place that we could put them in a position where they have to share the science that they continually referred to, but they wouldn't give it to us in any sort of way that we could work with it. Um, that didn't happen. All right, so what did happen? Well, basically, Immediately after the ruling was made and validating her powers, um, her administration claimed that she had another month of transition time where she could continue to do this thing that was just ruled illegal. New tonight, Governor Whitmer asking, as we were just talking about, the Michigan Supreme Court to keep those emergency orders in place for another three weeks. And that comes after the court ruled the governor overstepped her authority with her emergency order. So let's get to Rod Maloney. He's live to uh, kind of sort this whole thing out for us, Rod. Well, there's so much to uh, to deal with here. Devin just talked about the MDHHS putting out its order this afternoon, and they're telling us that uh, they believe that they are legally good with that. The governor wants 28 days, not just 21, to keep her orders in place, but it looks like that may not be the case because the House Speaker made it clear that he believes that the court's ruling on Friday started on Friday. Okay, so it's ruled illegal. And she says she has 21 more days to act illegally? 21 or 28, it was somewhere around a month where they were claiming they had legal precedent that even though it was unconstitutional, that they were still allowed to continue to violate it. So then we're in this limbo for like seven days as that's all the media is reporting. And then finally the Supreme Court issues a statement saying, no, there's no such basis for that. These are all invalidated, effective immediately. Um, but by that time, she had used her other executive departments to issue basically verbatim orders 
completely replacing everything that, that had just been invalidated. So even though supposedly only the legislature is supposed to make laws, and that was what invalidated the, these executive orders, we're now back at square one with, with it almost even being worse because at least the governor was elected. Now we're dealing with unelected, appointed officials who are given the power to you know, not just make the, the law, but also to enforce it as they see fit, and oftentimes adjudicate the laws as well. Friday ruling by the Michigan Supreme Court has caused confusion throughout the state on which COVID-19 related orders still stand. The governor initially said some of her orders, including the mask mandate, remain in effect under orders issued by the state health department. And the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services said today how its orders will apply going forward. 13 on your sides, Emma Nicholas joins us now live with what she has learned, and there were a lot of late developments on this, Emma. That's right, Nick. Local health departments started this morning in a scramble trying to figure out how they would move forward after the Supreme Court effectively invalidated orders put in place by Governor Gretchen Whitmer. However, late this afternoon, not even an hour ago, the state health department then did a sweeping order that in effect puts back a lot of those orders that the Supreme Court ruled against. It addresses things like the mask mandate, uh, gathering limits on gatherings and other aspects that were already put in place by the governor. And now State Health Department Director Robert Gordon says that this is likely the first of orders to come. So a majority of the governor's executive orders that dealt with everything from our capacity limits to the stay at home, they were all ruled to be uh, unconstitutional, illegal. So at this point, you know, we were excited that it was going to turn into a conversation. That's the one thing we'd always wanted. We wanted to hear the conversation. We wanted to have a, a, a voice in it, and involving the legislature was going to be a way to do that. I'm not a, a big supporter of Republican le legislature, but the more voices we have, the better conversations can be. So when the rulings were made, you were confident that you wouldn't see another lockdown, or what were your thoughts about that specifically? I mean, at this point, my confidence in anything had been, you know, pretty much shaken. Sure. But at least it seemed like, okay, we're moving, the system's working, it's moving in a direction, let's, let's get it to the next step. But that was pretty short-lived. All right, well, let's jump to November 15th. Third, the order closes indoor public and business settings where people gather. This includes indoor service at bars and restaurants, indoor entertainment venues like casinos, bowling centers, movie theaters, and ice rinks, and group exercise classes. All right, so were you surprised to hear about another lockdown? I wasn't surprised. Uh, at that point, they had been kind of ramping up um, the talk coming from the, the political leadership as well as in the media of increasing cases and kind of doing more of, of what seemed to be a lot of the worst-case scenario, fear-driven stuff. Um, so it seemed like they were trending towards this, plus with just the seasonality of becoming the winter season. You know, were we shocked? No. Were we frustrated? Yes. Can you tell me, like, how did you actually feel? You know, I obviously frustrated, but what was going through your mind? I mean, what it, it was like a pit in my stomach kind of falling out again. Like, we had survived at this point. You know, PPP was, was long gone. Uh, we did okay during the summer, not not where we wanted to be, but we did good enough. And now heading into the winter, which is a, a scary time for restaurants, bam, you know, you're going to take our legs out from under us. And then quickly my, my thoughts turned to, you know, my, my employees, mm. since we had to lay off so many last time. Did you hear from them? They also received the same sort of notification through the media that you did. 
Yeah, so it was Sunday, um, I believe it was Sunday, November 15th, that they made the announcement that was to take effect on the 18th. So they gave us like a two or three day window. Within an hour or two of her making the announcement, I got multiple text messages, um, mostly from my servers, um, because they knew they were the ones to be likely most heavily affected by it. Um, a lot of them were not in a great place financially. You know, they were able to survive um, the first lockdown, but you know, again, with the summertime being a little bit on the slower end, losing out some of those big catering events, you know, especially my front of the house staff was not in a great position and they were, they were scared. If they could not take a layoff, I've got, you know, single moms that work for me. I've got, you know, breadwinners of their family. It's, it's a complete, you know, misrepresentation to think that we're just a bunch of restaurants or teenagers or just people with a little side hustle thing. There, there are people that, you know, require this job to be able to take care of their families. And that was the messages I was getting. You know, the server who just bought a new house didn't know how she was going to make the payment. Uh, the single mother of four kids, the other single mother of two kids. You know, these are all things that are in front of my mind. And then to see their, their words at me, you know, I, I just, I tried to do my best to tell them that, you know, we'd figure something out, but I didn't have anything figured out. So what'd you do next? Schedule a meeting with, with my leaders of my, my back of the house, as well as my general manager here. Um, and sat down in our office and I just kind of laid out the situation with what, what the orders were. And I said, well, you know, I, I want you guys to understand that, in, that we basically have three choices at this point and I'm not here to force anything on you guys. First choice is to do what we did last time, lay off probably at least 20 people, go to a really slim down menu and then hope we can survive long enough to, to get through this. Um, option two would be similar to that one, but try to do a larger menu, try to preserve a couple extra jobs, but in the end it'd still be more or less the same. Um, and the third option that I presented them was uh, we find a way to keep our dining room open as safely and securely as possible, but we don't turn our backs on our people. What was the reaction? <laughs> uh, I think they were blown away that I, I put this weight of decision onto them, or at least gave them a, a voice in the process. Um, I knew they didn't, they didn't take it lightly, and I could see as they, you know, just on their faces as they were going through different scenarios, I could tell at first maybe what was best for them, but quickly turning to, you know, we're the leaders of this team, what's going to be best for this team? So, you know, after some discussion and some back and forth and kind of fleshing out what the details might look like, you know, they decided, we all decided that we were going to we were going to make a stand and we were going to take care of our team and do it as safely as possible. Wow, so you guys made the decision to stay open, defy orders. How do you communicate something like that to the team? The next step we immediately did was um, start calling in the employees one, one by one hmm. um, and laid it out there. You know, one of my main goals with doing this is I wanted full transparency and that's across the board with my team, with the public, with everybody. We brought all the employees in, let them know exactly what was going on, um, tried to make them aware of potential outcomes, knowing that they would never face any sort of criminal risk or any anything like that to them. But at the same time, we all knew the world we lived in, the politicized charge of it, the, the, the families that weren't still getting along. and moving forward the way we were, I warned them, you know, being associated with us, it could bring some some ill thoughts towards them. And I didn't know how that was going to affect their relationships. So as, as we went through and discussed with each employee, we told them that and we gave them the choice that they could take a, a voluntary layoff and it, nothing would be put against them. They'd always be welcome back um, whenever it was all over, whenever they were ready to return, or they were welcome to stick with the team and then see where we can go with this. I expected most of the team to support, but I was honestly overwhelmed that I think of our 28 employees, 26 were, were on board most enthusiastically, um, many very grateful for just, for me 
for us giving them a shot sure. at being able to you know, continue to earn a paycheck and take care of their families. We had two employees that did choose the voluntary layoff, but even they were very supportive and they had very understandable personal reasons, as I alluded to, um, for why they chose to do that. But we had the majority of the team on board and we were figuring out the next steps of how to best move forward. So your team decides to stay open and they've supported this decision. What about your family? Like with everything, there's there's a lot of diversity of opinions. Um, my wife was always very supportive of me. You know, she she trusts that I'm always looking out for her and you know my kids' best interest. Um, so she understood what I was doing and she trusted that I was going to make the right decision for it. You know, other members of my family, uh, my parents, not very supportive. They're always supportive of me, but I could tell in this situation they just. They just couldn't understand. They couldn't wrap their heads around it. Um, I have two sisters. One was, you know, very supportive and understanding, um, and the other one was more kind of in my parents' camp. Um, you know, to the point where we even had, you know, something amounting to a fight. And I felt like I, for a while, I couldn't even talk to my sister. I'd never been in that position in my life. I mean, it was disconcerting because, you know, I want to make my parents proud, even though I'm, you know, I'm a grown adult. Sure. You know, I still, I still want them to be proud of, of me and everything that I'm doing. And so to do something that not only aligned with my core belief of taking care of my people, um, my fiduciary responsibility to take care of my business, and then also to some degree, you know, my personal moral compass of doing what was right, but then still having you know people as close to me as my parents and my sister, uh, you know some aunts, uncles. You know, I have a pretty big family. Having having many members not understand or just blatantly not agree with you, you know, it's 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 not the best feeling in the world. But at the end of the day, I was confident in the choice that we had made, and my team had made it with me. So I knew we were all on this together. Can I ask you, why did you make this decision for the second lockdown, but not the first? Well, the first lockdown, we didn't have a lot of information. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't have made this decision if I thought there was serious risk to anybody. And during the first period, we didn't have the data. They said there was a serious risk, so we took it at face value. We followed through with the rules and kept going with it. And even as the frustrations mounted, as the benchmarks continued to be changed, as the 15 days to flatten the curve became 85 days to survive. Um, it, it just put us in a, in a position where we just, we, we didn't feel great about the whole thing. And so, but we did what we had to do. But this next time around, where we feel like we're trapped, the Supreme Court had already ruled against it. That didn't matter. The legislature is still denied a seat at the table. Any questions are still dismissed as partisan attacks. Uh, our restaurant association, who had been you know, vocally trying to work with the governor, they've been completely pushed aside and sidelined. The countdown is on as businesses prepare for that second wave of restrictions, which does include indoor entertainment and indoor dining at bars and restaurants. Today, the Michigan Restaurant and Lodging Association says it is suing the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services over these new restrictions. Yes, Glenda, some restaurants have gotten creative with the use of plastic igloos, but the head of the Restaurant Association calls the ban on indoor dining indiscriminate and not even rationally related to stopping the spread of COVID-19. With this order, you can get a tattoo, but you can't get a taco. There's just an, an unequal approach to how this uh, order is 
uh, being implemented and we don't believe it to be fair. And so the Michigan Restaurant and Lodging Association has filed a lawsuit against Robert Gordon, the director of the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Michigan restaurants seeking an injunction to the state's order that they close to indoor dining, hoping a judge agrees with them and allows them to continue to welcome guests to come in and have a seat. This industry, you know, it's, it's frustrated that it continues to be uh, believed to be right the the sacrificial lamb so to speak when we have to demonstrate that we're operating safely that we have to take actions to be to be safe as citizens they are willing to do their part and then some uh but they can't be shut down not now not again only four percent of the entire outbreak investigations the state have are tied back to restaurants right there are a lot of industries out there that have a worse experience rating that are still operating right now Justin Winslow, president and CEO of the Michigan Restaurant and Lodging Association, says if members have to close to indoor dining, many of their restaurants will not survive. For anyone who's in the full service side of this industry, which means dining room is a, a part of your business model, that's it. That is the main thrust of where you're going to get uh, your business. People come out for the experience in addition to the food, the atmosphere in addition to the food. Some have done well and, and, and been able to get by, not, not, you know, not thrive, but get by with carry out and some delivery. But for a lot of others, they won't. And we know that 40% of our members will just close uh, if this order takes effect. So there were no conversations. Nobody had a voice. We felt trapped. And, and again, restaurant workers being treated like second class citizens, being told you're not allowed to earn a living, that you're not allowed to take care of your family, but that we're not going to do anything about it. Good luck, thanks for the sacrifice. So you felt like it was the moral decision to take matters into your own hands and really attend to your family, your restaurant family that is, and make sure that they were taken care of, is that right? Yeah, so at that point it felt like to follow these orders was going to harm people. And they hadn't proven to me that my restaurant couldn't operate safely. We hadn't had any contact tracing come back to us. The numbers related to restaurants was something like 4% of all outbreaks uh, went to them, which while that's not nothing, that was dwarfed by um, a lot of the larger retailers or manufacturing. And, and we gotta remember, we have, we have transient clients. We have customers coming in and out all day, but meanwhile, manufacturing where it's you know, the same people working the same shifts, they were having much more outbreaks there or, or getting into like government controlled agencies, prisons, massive amounts of outbreaks, uh, the um, government offices, those were even some of the leaders of it in the schools. So it's, it's, it's felt like we were getting scapegoated, even though there was not a lot of data or science to actually prove that we were the threat that they made us out to be. Forcing my people to be laid off without any additional benefits before Christmas was a real world threat that I knew was gonna mess with some lives and mess with some kids' lives. So that's where my moral compass kicked in. And I said, unless you're able to justify this, I'm gonna make sure that my people are taken care of and do the best I can to do it as safely as possible. You talked about some different industries and some of the data that was coming out. Um, you're a food safety expert. Can you just highlight some of the measures that your restaurant normally takes beyond COVID, just to ensure that there's safety from table to table. Sure, and in fact, a good number of additional mandates that were placed on us, we already had in place. Mm. We have our scheduled deep clean rotation. Throughout the day, we're doing multiple improvement projects. Um, we have areas of accountability throughout the restaurant. We have many, many checklists and sub checklists to make sure stuff's done the right way every single time. Um, all it takes is your restaurant getting one person sick to completely ruin your reputation. And beyond that, you know, I, the public puts a 
trust in me and I, I take that responsibility very serious. That's why I did go through the extra education. I do have my degree in hospitality business. I am a certified serve safe uh, food safety manager, trainer and test proctor. I certify other people to be able to run managed restaurants safely. So this is always a huge deal for me to make sure that we're doing things as safely as possible every time. Wow, so you, you definitely take this seriously. Like this is really important to you. Yes, it's the most important job that I have. I always tell my employees before we make dollar one, before we put a smile on any guest's face, the most important duty that we have is to serve safe food in a safe environment. So you're confident that staying open is the right decision. You guys are moving forward with that. What did you do next? Well. We called the cops. With frightened teammates messaging Patrick with concerns of how they would take care of their family, Patrick and his leaders made the incredibly tough decision to defy the orders to close their dining room in order to keep their team employed. Come back for the next episode of Restaurant Revolution to see what the civil disobedience looked like and how the government would respond. 